Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 29 By the Sword of the Magistrate There are the particulars of the affliction of my poor children, given in evidence at two sundry Aziz and two several juries. But it pleased mercy to interpret the law in their favour, and the proceedings which made the way easy for their escape I fear were not fair. Either the hardness of hearts to believe, which made some of the best sort incredulous, or the openness of hand to give, which waylaid justice. Edward Fairfax, writing in 1621. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last time we had a special episode, since it was April Fool's. I hope everyone enjoyed it and wasn't too confused, and if there are any new listeners to the podcast who found the show through it, welcome. Last time we had a regular episode, we covered the political fallout of the 1612 Pendle Witch Trials in Lancaster, and how the magistrates involved, and possibly a faction at court, used the official story to protect and advance their own careers. We also heard about two cases in Leicester, in 1616 and 1619. The 1619 case, where the Earl of Rutland brought charges against his former servants for murdering his children with sorcery, led to their deaths. But of particular interest to us is the trial in 1616. Nine women were hanged for witchcraft on the testimony of a young boy, but after King James questioned the accuser personally, he admitted to having fabricated his symptoms. This week, then, we will examine the changing attitudes within the royal court and the larger English society to the witch trials. The first trial we'll look at today is known to us, though not through official records, but rather through a pamphlet written and published by the chaplain of London's famous Newgate prison, Henry Goodcole. Registered for publication just over a week after the execution of its subject, the wonderful discovery of Elizabeth Sawyer, which opens the pamphlet by stating that Goodcole has no wish to become involved in the greater debate of the threat posed by, or the existence of, witchcraft and instead is merely relating the truth of the case. Goodcole, in his role as chaplain of Newgate, had spoken at length to the so-called Witch of Edmonton, Elizabeth Sawyer, a poor woman who was hanged in 1621 for murdering her neighbour with witchcraft. What we know of Sawyer is largely from Goodcole's pamphlet, but her fame, such as it was, comes from a play first performed in 1621, called, funnily enough, the Witch of Edmonton. Unlike the pamphlet on the Lancaster trials, there doesn't appear to have been any obvious agenda in Goodcole's work other than his desire to warn others of the dangers of heresy. Sawyer is described in the pamphlet as having lived in Edmonton, which is now part of Greater London, but was then considered a separate part of the county of Middlesex. She is said to have been pale, with a significant stoop in her walk, and only one eye, which may have been an inherited condition, or, in the account of Sawyer herself, caused by her child poking her eye out when she bent over the deathbed of her mother. Speaking of family, Sawyer is said to have been married with multiple children. 
Sawyer had a reputation for witchcraft among her community, a suspicion that only hardened when her neighbours used a traditional ritual for discovering whether someone was a witch. A piece of Sawyer's thatch was taken from her roof and burnt. If the owner of the thatch was summoned by the burning, then they were a witch. Unfortunately for Sawyer, she appeared at the burning, although whether this was just because she had just had part of her house stolen and she wanted to know by whom is unknown. After the deaths of cattle, a woman called Agnes Radcliffe, and a number of young children, the local magistrate Arthur Robinson had Sawyer arrested and ensconced in Newgate. On the 14th of April, Sawyer was accused of the murder of Agnes Radcliffe, as well as two unnamed children. Our friendly neighbourhood chaplain, Goodcall, states that the motivation for the murders was simple malice, aimed at those neighbours who wouldn't buy Sawyer's brooms, although there are suggestions that the death of Agnes was due to a more specific dispute. Agnes had smacked Sawyer's pig for eating her soap, and Sawyer had been naturally irritated by the bashing of her bacon, cursing at Agnes. Sometime later, Agnes fell ill, with her symptoms including foaming at the mouth, and she was dead within four days. In between the dying and the thome, she managed to name Sawyer as her killer in the presence of her husband. The husband recounted these in court, and Goodcall makes a point to state that they heavily affected the jury. He went further and described seeing a white ferret scurrying through Sawyer's thatched roof, while local children testify to seeing Sawyer feeding two white ferrets milk and bread. The natural implication here was that the ferrets were familiars, demons or spirits in disguise which did the bidding of Sawyer. In the face of this testimony, Sawyer remained defiant, pleading not guilty to all the charges. When the jury was split on the verdict, they requested advice from the judge. The judge, Sir Heneage Finch, told them to look to God, but Arthur Robinson, the arresting magistrate, wasn't happy with that sort of vague, woolly, open-to-interpretation stuff, and ordered Sawyer searched for the witch's teat. Sawyer, according to Goodcall, resisted, quote, sluttishly and loathsomely, end quote, although what he quite means by that I don't know. Despite her sluttish and loathsome resistance, a growth was found near Sawyer's anus, which Robinson pointed to, hopefully not literally, as evidence of her consorting with familiars. Sawyer was subsequently found guilty of murdering Agnes, but found not guilty of murdering the children. Either way, the punishment was the same. So when Goodcall came to Sawyer in his capacity as chaplain, she appeared resigned to her fate and quite openly confessed to the crimes of which she had been accused. She told Goodcall that she had met the devil eight years ago, appearing to her while she was in the midst of cursing and blaspheming, after which he appeared three times a week in the form of a dog called Tom. This devil dog convinced Sawyer to give her body and soul to him, and ordered her to pray to Satan using elements of the Latin paternoster, because of course Catholicism was involved somehow. After which Tom sucked blood from her, through her clothes for 15 minutes, which apparently did not hurt Sawyer. Tom usually did as she ordered, although he occasionally gave his own orders and was stroked and pet, like your ordinary dog, except this dog threatened her when she mocked his instructions. Sawyer went on to deny the murder of Agnes, but instead confessed to the deaths of the children, of which she had been cleared. 
Elizabeth Sawyer remained in Newgate for two days after Goodcall's visit, after which she was taken to Tyburn, where she was hanged for witchcraft and murder. After this, Goodcall appears to have faced pressure from colleagues to hear about Sawyer's confessions, as well as hearing about, quote, most base and false ballads, end quote. Wishing to correct the record, he wrote up her testimony into a pamphlet in only three or four days and had it published. The lesson in Sawyer's case was clear. Cursing and blaspheming summoned the devil and opened otherwise good Christians up to dreadful sin. Her wicked tongue hurt her legal defence, causing her to be unable to, quote, speak a sensible or ready word for her defence, end quote. When the pamphlet was adapted into a play, the Witch of Edmonton made heavy use of the devil dog, which was played by an actor who appeared incredibly friendly and manipulative. Sawyer initially is merely an old, poor woman, treated unfairly by her neighbours and social betters. After being beaten by one such neighbour, the dog appears, and promises her revenge if she pledges him her soul. Sawyer comes across as much more of a victim, led astray through the efforts of her satanic pet and the persecution of her corrupt neighbours. Professor Marion Gibson of the University of Exeter, writing for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, states that this more sympathetic light was due to the arguments of Reginald Scott finally making its way through society. Scott had argued decades previously that witches were either innocent victims of rampant ignorance and legal barbarity, or mentally ill and senile persons deluded by their imagination or their Catholicism. The other case of witchcraft worth looking at in 1621 is the case of the Boy of Bilston, and many of the elements will be familiar to us from the last few episodes. The titular Boy was a 13-year-old who accused a Jane Clark of witchcraft at the Staffordshire Aziz in 1621. The boy, which I will keep calling him because I can't find a name, appeared possessed, vomiting pins and thread and other things which would normally not have any right to be inside anyone. He also suffered fits when subjected to the Gospel, particularly the Gospel of St. John. Much like with the case of Anne Gunter in 1605, who suffered a similar affliction, the boy was taken into the care of a man of God, in this case Thomas Morton, Bishop of Lichfield. Just as sceptical as Archbishop Bancroft and Bishop Harsnett, Morton supposedly declared, quote, Boy, it is either thou or the devil that abhorrest the words of the gospel, and if it be the devil, he, being so ancient a scholar as almost six thousand years standing, knows and understands all languages so he cannot but know when I recite the same sentence out of the Greek text. But if it be thyself, then thou art an execrable wretch who plays the devil's part. End quote. Would anyone like to guess whether this 13-year-old English boy understood biblical Greek? That's right. He had no idea when Morton was reciting the Gospel of St. John or his shopping list. His fraud was exposed and he admitted in court that he had lied and wrongly accused Jane Clark. So far in these last few episodes, we've seen a number of cases where sceptical officials, both secular and clerical, have exposed high-profile trials of witches as nothing more than fraud. James himself had played a role in at least two that we know of, and it is very likely that he was involved in and made aware of other such cases where judicial credulity had, or almost led, 
to the execution of innocent subjects. Perhaps James's views of witchcraft had changed. Perhaps he was just as firm a believer in the danger posed by witchcraft in the 1620s as he had been 30 years previously, having freshly disembarked his storm-wracked ship. In either case, he was almost certainly greatly disappointed in the actions of many of his justices, and it appears that royal policy regarding witches was filtering into the judiciary, either by persuasion or by outright replacement of the more zealous witch hunters. One case shown by Ronald Holmes of a relatively moderate judge is seen in the complaints of an Edward Fairfax in 1622. Now, with the period we're in, the name Fairfax may ring a number of bells to students of the upcoming conflict between King and Parliament. This was not the one-time commander-in-chief of the parliamentary armies, Thomas Fairfax, but his uncle. In 1621, after the death of a daughter, one of his surviving daughters claimed to see visions of witches, and she, a sister, and a friend, all accused a number of local women of witchcraft, and of causing the death of the Fairfax daughter. Subsequently, Edward Fairfax brought charges against six people for bewitching his two daughters, but the judge had thrown the case out for lack of evidence. Not one to be deterred, Fairfax used his influence to have a second trial held, only for all six of the accused to, again, be acquitted of all charges. One of the key parts of the collapse of the case is that the girls went on to admit that they'd lied. The scheme was devised by the father of the friend, and the two Fairfax girls meant to use the accusations to receive attention from their father. The scheming father was arrested and jailed for his role in the fraud, and the judges in both trials criticised Fairfax for his naivety. For Fairfax, well, this was just not on. Like many parents, he could not accept that his wonderful, perfect little angels had lied and caused six people to face the threat of execution. Also, he had just been publicly humiliated by these judges, and that just wouldn't stand. Fairfax brought out the greatest weapon in an Englishman's arsenal, the Angry Letter. This letter was actually more of a treatise, to be fair, but it was still very angry. Called the Discourse on Witchcraft, it emerged in late 1621, and roundly complained of the behaviour of the judges, notably without actually naming them. Describing himself as, quote, neither a fantastic Puritan, or a superstitious papist, but so settled in conscience that I have sure ground of God's word to warrant all I believe, and the commendable practices of our English church to approve all I practice. End quote. Fairfax was well read, and his discourse made good use of relevant theology, both contemporary and classical, as well as recent cases throughout the kingdom and the continent of Europe. I read part of this treatise at the beginning of the episode, but here is a bit more. The judge, upon what occasion moved I know not, after some good plausible hearing of the evidence for a time, at last told the jury that the evidence reached not the point of the statute, and withdrew the offenders from their trial by the jury of life and death, and dismissed them at liberty, at which manner of proceedings many wiser men than I am greatly wonder. You can really hear the self-righteousness how dare the judge not put six people to death without being confident in the evidence? Yet, this does appear to be the end of the matter. 
I haven't seen any records to suggest that these unknown women had to face a third trial, no matter how many angry letters Fairfax wrote. The examples of trials I've covered over the last few episodes are only the tip of the iceberg. There were more and more cases where trials had imploded in spectacular fashion as witnesses or accusers folded and admitted to lying, or where trials had resulted in executions only to face significant criticism after the fact. Professor Gaskill states that for 20 years after 1618, there was only a single execution on the home circuit disease, which included the counties of Essex, Hertfordshire, Kent, Surrey, and Sussex. He explains this as evidence of the growing scepticism and incredulity of magistrates and the church. When there were successful convictions in the county of Somerset in 1626, a local minister publicly criticised the resulting executions. He faced accusations from advocates of the trial that he, quote, favoured witches, or were of Master Scott's erroneous opinion that witches were silly, deceived melancholics. He fired back, accepting that witches existed, but stating that juries should not believe all the testimony, implying that the Somerset prosecution was based on false testimony. Professor Gaskell goes further and compares the treatment of slander during James's reign with the growing wariness of magistrates. To accuse someone of being a witch and then being unable to prove it would open a person up to charges of slander. The judicial system began to focus more on logical and natural truths rather than just those of theology, and the weight attached to reputation and rumour began to decrease, replaced instead by things as ridiculous as evidence and examined witness testimony. Can you imagine such a legal system? Preposterous. The scepticism, or at least the appearance of scepticism of James, was inherited by Charles, just like the throne when James VI and I died in March of 1625. This wariness on the part of the royal court towards witch trials was shared by the judiciary and the clergy, and official opinion only became more and more cautious with a new king. There were exceptions, of course, but the trend was certainly towards restraint and logic. By 1630, with the publication of a new edition of a legal manual, the description of witches and the power they could wield remained included, but new advice accompanied such instructions, warning against being too credulous. Further, it became of paramount importance to rely on professional medical opinion in identifying the witch's mark. One such Scottish physician, James Hart, writing about accused witches in 1633, argued that, quote, Sometimes God in his justice suffereth such to be punished by the sword of the magistrate, although three from any compact with Satan. End quote. Prosecutors were to no longer use any bodily blemish to justify execution, and faith in divine providence was no longer enough. We'll finish off today by returning to Lancashire for a witch trial. No, not the 1612 trials, but for the 1634 trials. Often called the late Lancashire witches to distinguish it from the earlier trials, the events of 1633 and 1634 had more than one connection to the Pendle Trials than just where they took place. Both the Device and the Nutter families, victims of that earlier case, were again on trial for witchcraft, this time with the young Janet Device, one of the prime witnesses in the prosecution of her family, now facing the music for her family's reputation. 
the prime difference, and why these two cases are so useful in the study of English witch beliefs is how national officials reacted to the trial. In the words of Professor James Sharp at the University of York, If the 1612 executions can be adduced as a symbol of the more extreme aspects of English witch persecution, the government handling of the 1633-34 accusations demonstrates just how sceptical central authority, the upper reaches of the church, and possibly educated opinion in general had become about malefic witchcraft by that date. So how exactly did the late Lancashire witch trials begin? Well, dear listeners, it all began with a boy called Edmund Robinson, who was probably born between 1622 and 1624, so he was between 10 and 12 years old when he made allegations against a significant number of his neighbours. The reason for the disparity in his possible age is that contemporary accounts disagree. That will be a common theme of this case, especially regarding the number of suspects involved. Robinson claimed that on the 1st of November, 1633, which was notably All Saints Day, he came across two greyhounds while gathering plums. These dogs, one black and one brown, each had strings that appeared to shine like gold attached to their collars. Robinson attempted to make them chase a hare for him, but when neither dog seemed interested in doing so, he tied them together and prepared to beat them. At this point, the dogs transformed into a young boy and a woman Robinson named as Frances Dickinson. Dickinson offered Robinson a piece of silver to, you know, not mention the whole Animorphs rendition, but when Robinson refused to be bribed, she abducted him. Turning the former dog-turned-boy into a horse by putting a bridle on him, she took Robinson a quarter of a mile to a place where around 60 witches were feasting. Here, Robinson was offered food and drink, but after his first taste refused any more. It was then that he saw six witches in a barn, feeding from a trough, eat their fill, and be replaced by another six. Robinson described the witches as having terrifying faces, After recognising one of the witches as a neighbour's wife, Robinson ran. The coven took off in pursuit, only giving up chase when two horsemen appeared on the road and scared them off. When Robinson finally reached home, his father immediately sent him out again to find and return two of the family's cows. It was on this dairy duty that Robinson came across a young boy about his age. They came to blows, quote, and they fought so together till this informer had his ears made very bloody by fighting, and looking down he saw the boy had a cloven foot, end quote. Robinson again fled, only to see the witch he recognised at the Sabbath blocking a bridge. Stunned at the sight, Robinson was taken by surprise by the cloven-hoofed boy and struck from behind. His father, after becoming impatient with the lack of sons and cows that had returned to the house, went out to find him. And when he did so, young Robinson was crying and so beside himself that he didn't recognise his own father. In the days and weeks following this incident, Robinson repeatedly saw witches from the Sabbath watching his house, including Janet Device. At one point, on New Year's Day 1634, one of the witches was sat in his chimney. When he called up to her to come down, she disappeared. Throughout this, when young Edmund went to church, he made a big deal about recognising members of the congregation as being at the Sabbath. Yet, 
When the curate of their parish, John Webster, sought to speak to the boy, his father and friends shielded Edmund from the questions and prevented him from answering. A month later, when magistrates Richard Shuttleworth and John Tarkey arrived to conduct the Aziz, they took statements from Edmund Robinson and his father. From these accusations, a number of suspects were arrested and sent to Lancaster for trial, where they gave further names. Some accounts put the total number of suspected witches as high as 60. 60 people! That is Würzburg or Trier numbers, and completely unprecedented in English witch trials. Fear not, I'm not about to bombard you with 60 names and a dozen aliases. I'll only mention a few. Janet Device, the granddaughter of old Demdike, who had provided the most effective testimony during the trial of her family in 1612. Mary Spencer, who would have been joined by her parents had they not already died. And Margaret Johnson. Aside from Device, whose inclusion is mainly to show how familial reputation was tenacious in these small communities, I've included Spencer and Johnson due to their testimony. For her part, Johnson confessed to making a pact with the devil when he had appeared to her in a fancy black silk suit, calling himself Mamillion, and they had sex. Mamillion promised to supply her with all of her wants and needs, and all she needed to do was to give up her soul. After doing so, she rode to a sabbat of thirty or forty witches to, quote, consult for the killing and hurting of men and beasts, end quote. Each of these witches had their familiars with them, and the devil himself was present among them, quote, more eminent than the rest, end quote. Johnson was unable to provide any other details of events at the Sabbath, and so Robinson's testimony of feeding from troughs and drinking foul liquid filled in the gaps. Dr. Poole points out that while this was not a point-for-point Sabbath found in the descriptions of Catholic demonologists, there are a lot of similarities that suggest that, as the metropolitan elites of London imagined, the North was still steeped in Catholic superstition. Professor Gaskill suggests that it was testimony like this, of diabolic conspiracy, that did the most to erode the legitimacy of the trial. Except under the most zealous witch-hunters, such tales were dismissed as fanciful, and the English establishment was far from zealous in this regard. The case of Mary Spencer would be funny if it didn't run the risk of execution. It appears that the main article against Spencer was a bucket. An ordinary bucket, used to collect water from a well. Well, it turns out that people witnessed her call out to the bucket as she ran down a hill. Shock and horror, the bucket rolled down the hill after her. Clearly, this was sorcery of the most malevolent nature. Except Spencer was having none of it. When examined, she roundly rejected the accusation that she was in league with the devil, proclaiming her status as a good Christian who regularly attended church and could recite the creed and the Lord's Prayer. The issue with the bucket came from a childhood habit. When she was young, she had often rolled an empty bucket down a hill on her way to the well, and she would then chase after it to try and overtake it. If she did so, she would jokingly call to it to catch up. Just an easy way to entertain herself on a boring chore. This habit had not been lost in adulthood, and hence the accusation that she had bewitched the bucket to do her dark bidding. Spencer proudly placed her fate in the hands of Christ, and it appears that Christ was listening that day, through John Bridgman, the Bishop of Chester. 
Bridgman, in the manner of many Anglican hierarchs, was sceptical of the more outrageous claims, and had been ordered by London to keep an eye on the proceedings. After hearing the testimony of the Robinsons and a number of the accused, he ordered that five of the suspected witches, including Spencer and Johnson, as well as Edmund Robinson and his father, be taken to London to be examined by experts. To illustrate quite what the official position was leaning towards, the Robinsons were placed under arrest and transported in conditions similar to the women they had accused. Once the party arrived in London, the true work began. Many, if not most, of the suspected witches had been found to have the witch's mark, the growth or blemish which was meant to either be a sign of the devil's pact, a source of blood to feed their familiar, or both. When they were examined in the capital by a team of seven surgeons and ten midwives, led by the king's own physician, Dr. William Harvey, it was found that the supposed teat on Johnson's body was, quote, nothing but the skin of the fundament drawn out as it will after the piles or the application of leeches, end quote. So, while not particularly nice, certainly natural and not diabolic. For Spencer, who was said to have two witch teats in her, quote, secrets, end quote, Harvey concluded that they were nothing natural or anything like a teat or mark. With these professionals disregarding the physical evidence outright, the case now relied on witness testimony. Unfortunately for the prosecution, this had begun to unravel almost immediately after the Robinsons' arrival in London. After being imprisoned in the gatehouse jail, Robinson the Elder had already distanced himself from the accusations, laying the blame for how far things had gone solely at the feet of the magistrates in charge of the Aziz, who had ordered him to bring his son to give his testimony, and then ran with it. He denied using the threat of a witchcraft accusation against his enemies, and claimed that he had never believed his son's story, and was only acting as a concerned father worried about his son's visions. Imprisoned in London, and concerned about his fate, he had good reason to reduce his own responsibility for a trial that was rapidly disintegrating, but it does make some sense. The magistrates would have reacted to the atmosphere that permeated Pendle, with its rumours of dozens of witches operating in an organised cabal. It is possible that, despite the family's central role in creating this state of affairs, that things got out of hand. Robinson the Younger fairly quickly cracked under examination. He admitted that he had invented the stories based on the rumours of the 1612 trial, and denounced the enemies of his father and friends, as well as those of the community who had reputations for sorcery, such as Janet Device. Quote, All that tale is false and feigned, and has no truth at all, but only as he has heard tales and reports made by women, so he framed his tale out of his own invention. End quote. He had embellished these rumours from the folk tales and superstition that was common in Lancashire, particularly the tales that told about the Sabbath at Malkin Tower in 1612. Why had he done this? Edmund didn't say. He denied for decades that anyone had put him up to it, only to later admit to the minister John Webster, the curate who had sought to question him so long ago, who happened to be writing a treatise against witchcraft belief in 1677, that it was indeed his father that was responsible. What happened to the witches themselves? That is sadly unclear. 
What is known is that the five witches who had been taken to London in chains returned to Lancaster in chains, and in 1636, Mary Spencer and Janet Device were among those still imprisoned in Lancaster Castle, despite the case imploding in spectacular fashion. Why this was, we don't know. So as we come to a close on our time with the early Stuart monarchs, it seems clear that, whatever James's intentions upon taking the throne in 1603 and his promulgation of the Witchcraft Act, he and his son were not happy with how their subjects were interpreting their wishes. Ronald Holmes argues that James was sincere in his belief in the danger of witchcraft when he issued the statute, but the repeated and extensive misuse of his law to, quote, foster the purposes of charlatans, blackmails, political conspirators, and petty rogues brought home to him the awful truth that he had given license to unreasoned slaughter, end quote. Thank you to Hammer of the Witches, executed today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, and the Inquisitors Trish G, Elaine D, and to all of my demonologists and theologians for supporting the show through Patreon. The latest fruit of your support arrived just last week, my own copy of the Oxford Handbook of Witchcraft in Early Modern Europe and Colonial America, a collection of works by some of today's leading academics, and now I don't have to keep renewing my loan from the library. Very helpful for the upcoming episodes. So thanks again to all my patrons. You can join their ranks by visiting the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>